Got your Bibles, and let's open them up together to the book of Daniel and chapter 2. The book of Daniel and chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please feel free to use one uh, provided in the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning in those Bibles on page 739. Uh, Page 739. It's not what you know, but who you know that really matters. I would guess that most of us have heard people make that statement before. In fact, many of us have probably said it at some point or another. When someone is looking for a job or when someone is seeking a place of influence, we we tend to come back to this statement Uh, too often. Even if you know a great deal about a subject, even if you're the smartest person in the room when it comes to that subject, jobs and promotions and honors often seem to go to those who are maybe less qualified, but know the right people. In our culture, advancement can sometimes be more about how good you are at social networking than about how good you are at what you actually do. It's all about who you know. Well, that's not a new statement. Uh, A quick search online revealed that Americans were saying that as a truism over a century ago. And I would guess that this reality goes back to civilizations even before the one we are reading about here in Daniel 2. But as I was thinking about our passage for this morning, it was this statement that came to my mind. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, having his life wrecked by this persistent dream that will not let him go. Nebuchadnezzar is desperate to find an answer to what the dream means. His actions in this chapter reveal just how much this dream had gotten a hold of him. It's as if he was having the same dream every night. It would not let him go. And so in his turmoil, he turned to his wisest counselors, and every one of them failed him. But... Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel. And Daniel, with lives on the line, joins in prayer with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they plead with God to give them the answer. And God graciously reveals to Daniel the dream and its meaning. Daniel is able to reveal this mystery because Daniel knows the true God. And at the end of Daniel 2, Daniel's friends are elevated to powerful positions in the kingdom of Babylon. These are positions where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have great influence. They will be able to help protect God's people in exile there. How did these three young men get these high positions? Well, they knew Daniel, and Daniel was highly exalted by Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, in this life, so much depends on who you know. 
But at the end of the day, there is only one whom you must know if you are to be saved from eternal judgment and delivered into eternal blessing. If you know no one else, you must know him. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. Nothing is more important in this life than knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. So with that in mind, let's end our look at Daniel 2 by reading verses 46 through 49. Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49. We're going to see what happened after Daniel had revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar his dream and its meaning. This is the very word of Almighty God, beginning in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now I see in these verses a proud king humbled, a true God acknowledged, an obedient servant honored, and faithful friends remembered. So that will be our outline this morning. Number one, a proud king humbled. In verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time, falls on his face. Having received this word from Daniel, this lofty king puts himself low. Why? Well, certainly he was humbled by the prophecy itself. Uh, Frankly, as Daniel had revealed the dream and its interpretation, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had just learned two very sobering truths. Uh, He has just been told... That the position he holds, he holds only due to the will of God. He has just been given the, the reality that he cannot boast in his great power because God gave it to him and God can take it away. And then there was the second truth. He learned that his kingdom is a temporary kingdom. He has just learned that not only is his reign going to end, but this kingdom of Babylon is going to end. And many more kingdoms are going to come up after it. In fact, as glorious as Nebuchadnezzar thinks his kingdom is, it's not the strongest of the kingdoms to come. There's a stronger one coming. One of iron. We know it as the Roman Empire. And it will surpass the Babylonian Empire in its might. And then, of course, he learned in this prophecy that there is yet another kingdom. 
different kind of kingdom, a divine kingdom that will overcome and that will outlast every earthly kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, you think your kingdom's something? You think your power is great? It doesn't even compare. And that kind of message will humble a man. That kind of message will take a boastful king and and cut him down a few notches. And then also, Nebuchadnezzar is likely humbled because he realizes what is happening in this moment. He's been desperate. He has been enwrapped in turmoil. And suddenly, he is receiving a word from Almighty God Himself. He knows that this is something extraordinary. Because he had not told a soul the content of his dream. And yet Daniel now repeats to him his own dream in detail. This was a spine-tingling, heart-racing, jaw-dropped-open moment. And it is good and right that he humbled himself in response. However, we cannot commend Nebuchadnezzar too much, can we? Because when he falls on his face, who does he pay homage to? Who does he order that a sacrifice and incense be offered up to? Not to Daniel's God, but to Daniel. Do you see that in the passage? Nebuchadnezzar begins to worship Daniel. Remember in Revelation 22, when John the Apostle fell down at the feet of an angel? And the angel said, you must not do that. Worship God. Only God is to be given our worship. Some have argued that Nebuchadnezzar here wasn't really worshiping Daniel. They say that when Nebuchadnezzar falls down and orders for incense to be offered up to Daniel, he was doing so because he saw Daniel as God's spokesman, God's representative. And so by worshiping here before Daniel, he was really worshiping Daniel's God. Uh, E.J. Young points to an episode in which Alexander the Great bowed down before the high priest of the Jews. And when his general, shocked that Alexander the Great would bow to any man, asked him about this, Alexander said, I do not worship the high priest, but the God with whose high priest he has been honored. And so some think that's what, Daniel, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, worshiping God through Daniel. But even if that's the case, it's still inappropriate. It's still Immoral. It, it violates the commandments of God. And we've already seen in this chapter how Daniel intentionally sought to deflect glory away from himself to his God. That God would receive all the credit. That God would receive all the honor. Unless you think that because Nebuchadnezzar is now on his face that he is a repentant man. Lest you think he is now a converted man. Just cast your eyes over to Daniel chapter 3. And you will see that Daniel is not a saved man. Like Pharaoh in Exodus, he has his moments. 
He has his moments when he speaks humbly. He has his moments when he seems to be penitent. But it isn't long before his fruit starts to show again. And it is evident that this king is living in pagan pride and wickedness. And I think that's an important word for us this morning. We often encounter people who in the moment seem to be acting differently than they normally do. We often encounter people who, who in a particular moment may be in a humble state of mind. And they may even claim to have come to know the true God. They may even claim to have truly changed. They may even claim that everything will be different from that day forward. And Mount Hermon love demands that we hope the best. We are not to be cynics. We are not to assume the worst. We are not to refuse to believe that God has changed them. We are to hope the best. But even as we are hoping, we must be slow before we affirm that they've been changed by God. We join with the devil if we give people false assurance without warrant. Love demands that we allow time for fruit to show itself. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, while this was a a penitential moment, a humble moment, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. This is why we do not rush people into church membership. This is why we don't hurry people into baptism. We love to see people baptized. We love welcoming people into this church body. I wish we were adding people to this church every single Sunday. God, make it happen, right? We, we want that to happen. But no matter how much we desire to see those things, we cannot be a faithful church if we are not careful and slow in affirming People have truly been changed by God. I've told you before how I learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, When I was associate pastor in Pascagoula, Mississippi, we had a lady come down at the end of the service and she asked to join our church. And following the practice of that church, the pastor immediately turned her around, faced the congregation. The congregation voted her into church membership. And then that afternoon, we learned that she was a lesbian living with her partner, and she had no intentions whatsoever of following Christ in that regard. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I've seen many people in a moment where they were brought low by a word from God. And for some, praise Jesus, they were truly changed, they were redeemed. But for far too many, it wasn't long before the emotions wore off. And they return to their former way of life. And so it is with King Nebuchadnezzar. Second, notice the true God acknowledged. The true God acknowledged. This is verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now that just sounds like a breakthrough moment, doesn't it? I mean, the king declares that Daniel's God is God of gods. Nebuchadnezzar declares that Daniel's God is king over all other kings. This is a good moment. It doesn't last, 
But at least in the moment that the light bulb has come on and Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that there is one supreme God in heaven. And the key for Nebuchadnezzar is that this God was able to reveal to him what he so desperately wanted to know. Notice in verse 47, he calls Daniel's God a revealer of mysteries. In Isaiah 48, God reveals that he is the one and only true God, that he is different from the idols, he is different from the false gods. And as evidence, the true God gives two things. Number one, that it is he who accomplishes all things. And number two, that it is he who is able to reveal what is going to happen before it happens. God says in Isaiah 48, 5, I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. In other words, I tell you what I'm going to do before I do it so that you know that it was I that did it and not one of your false gods. So Nebuchadnezzar, seeing that Daniel's God has just revealed the future to him, knows that Daniel's God must be the one who works the future, the one who who brings future about. Nebuchadnezzar has this moment where he realizes Daniel's God is the Lord of history. And yet again, while we can commend him for this acknowledgement, we cannot miss the error that's still here. Because as a true pagan, this king still sees the true God as one among others. He calls him the God of gods, but he still has a category for other gods. He he doesn't yet realize that Marduk is a lie. He doesn't yet realize that Ishtar is a false deity. And tellingly, after this moment, he does not put away his other gods. He does not give himself to the worship of Yahweh. Indeed, though he proclaims Daniel's God as the highest God in these verses, what comes in the following chapter pretty much confirms that Nebuchadnezzar did not continue seeing things this way. What we have here is a moment of enthusiasm, but not a moment of lasting conviction. Perhaps there's a word here for anyone in this room who is professing the true God while continuing to serve other gods as well. Could it be that on Sunday morning you are here worshiping the true God, but on Monday morning you are giving yourself to the gods of ambition or earthly pleasures or worldly honors? As you fulfill your callings this week, for whom are you fulfilling them? Ultimately, for whom are you you serving? Your whole life is a sacrificial offering to someone or something. Who or what are you sacrificing to? Without a doubt, we will see that Nebuchadnezzar's chief god was not a Babylonian god at all. Nebuchadnezzar was not devoted to Marduk or Ishtar. He wasn't even devoted to the service of Nebo, and that's the god he was named after. His name literally means son of Nebo, one protected by Nebo. But no, Nebuchadnezzar was devoted to that god who has won the allegiance of so many billions through the whole world and throughout all of history. 
He was devoted to the God of self. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. True salvation comes when a person is sick and tired of serving self and is ready to say no to self in order to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Self is a God who is a slavish master that will wreck your life. Jesus is the kind of master who loves his people so much that he dies for them, but not self. Self demands that you sacrifice and serve it and it alone. Self is a terrible God. We need to die to self. And we need to live to Christ. So we've seen a proud king humbled. We've seen a true God acknowledged. Third, see an obedient servant honored. An obedient servant honored. This is verse 48. The king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Uh, Yes, it was Nebuchadnezzar who honored Daniel in this way. Daniel was made head over all the wise men. Uh, He was made ruler uh, second only to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel has now been made Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. The king's trusted advisor. And many people scoff at this. Really? A Jewish exile brought to Babylon in slavery is now being promoted to the second highest office in the land? Uh, The intellectuals who look at the book of Daniel point to this and say, come on, surely this is pure fantasy. But remember the desperation of this king. Remember how this dream had tormented him, how he was in dire straits without an answer, and remember how everybody else had failed him. What do you do when all your other advisors fail you and another is able to provide for you the answer you need most? Moreover, remember how we have already noted in previous chapters the character of Nebuchadnezzar, how he liked to surround himself with capable men. And frankly, I don't find this surprising or shocking at all, partly because I've been reading a history of Jerusalem that has been walking me through thousands of years of history, teaching me about dozens of kingdoms that have risen and fallen and interacted with Jerusalem over the centuries. And what I've seen is that in the next 2,000, 3,000 years after Babylon, 2,000 years, there will be many pagan rulers who surround themselves with eunuchs from conquered peoples as their most trusted advisors. In fact, what we see here happen in Daniel 2 is almost going to become commonplace in the centuries after this. Many kingdoms will take conquered peoples, find their best men, make them eunuchs, and take them on as their most trusted advisors. It is interesting how often this happened to the Jews. How many Jewish men 
found themselves as advisors, even to uh, later in later years, militant Islamic leaders. And yet their right hand men were Jewish eunuchs. So I don't think this uh, is fantasy at all. I think it's pure history. And of course, let's not forget God's hand here. Because ultimately, it is Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, ultimately, it is not Nebuchadnezzar who is working these things out. This was the plan of God to bring Daniel into this position. It is God who is honoring Daniel because even when Daniel had an opportunity to claim glory for himself, as Daniel did earlier in this chapter, he didn't take it. He gave glory to God. He deflected glory for himself and put all the focus on God. And now God is honoring Daniel. Daniel was a faithful witness to Nebuchadnezzar. And now the God who moves the hearts of kings... As easily as he moves streams of water, turns the heart of this king to honor Daniel in this way. Mount Hermon here is a very simple but often overlooked truth. You ready for this? This is, this is huge. And it's so simple. God blesses those who obey him. God blesses those who obey Him. Isn't it obvious? Isn't it simple? But do you feel the weight of that? Do you let that truth guide your life? In moments of temptation, does this truth prevail? Does this truth control you? God blesses those who obey Him. God draws near to those who humble themselves to do what He says. It is God's joy to honor those who honor Him through faithful obedience. You say, Justin, we're not saved by obedience. We're saved by faith. It's not works, it's faith. Yes, hallelujah, that is wonderfully true. But you are saved by faith alone in order to set you free from your bondage to self and sin. Christ has saved you so that you can and will know the joy of living in obedience to God. Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace alone. Ephesians 2.10, because God has good works prepared for you in order for you to walk in them. I love how Moses describes this in Deuteronomy 28.2. He tells Israel, All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. These blessings will overtake you. If you live in obedience to God, you will not be able to escape His blessing. You will not be able to get away from his blessing. Like a hound dog chasing its prey, the blessing of God will track you down, it will find you, and it will bless you. Normally, I don't like the idea of being chased down. But this is one time when that is a great thought. Is it not? Those who obey their God will find that he honors them and blesses them. And by the way, do we not have here a little picture of Christ? Daniel was faithful to honor God and to fulfill the mission that God had given him to do. And now God exalts Daniel over the kingdom. In the same way, Jesus came. He fulfilled exactly what his father gave him to do. Even when it meant going to the cross, he was willing to obey. And then God exalted him over all things. 
dear sinner, Jesus is able to save you this morning and to bring you safely to heaven for this reason. He was faithful in obeying his Father. Having accomplished his life work, having finished his cross work, Jesus now sits on the throne, able to send the Spirit into people's lives in order to save them and make them new. Jesus now has all authority. He has power to save you from your sins, power to save you from yourself, power to save you from from the anguish or guilt or frustration that you may be living in. We should call on Christ, the one whom God has appointed as king over all things. Well, finally, number four, we're almost done. Faithful friends remembered. Faithful friends remembered. Verse 49, what does it say? Daniel made a request of the king. He didn't just accept his promotion and leave. He made a request on the spot. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. One principle that we have here is that it is good for us to be mindful of our faithful friends. So far these young men have been with Daniel through thick and thin. They were with him when they were taken in exile. They were with him in taking a stand against the king's deceitful food in Daniel chapter 1. They were with him in having to sift through that Babylonian education they were given. Here they were in Daniel 2, praying together, earnestly begging God together for the answer to the dream. Daniel knows God could just as easily have given the answers to Shadrach as to him, or to Meshach, or to Abednego. And so Daniel is quick to share the honor. He is bold. Having just received this new promotion from the king, he makes this request for his friends. So also let us remember that living for Christ means being the kind of person who is constantly thinking about the welfare of others. Especially, we are to be living with constant regard for the state of our brothers and sisters in Christ. See each other in this room. Are you mindful of each other in this room? Do you think, how can I be of help when you are honored? Do you think, how can I bring others into this honor? When when God brings you into new prosperity, do you think, how can I bless my brothers and my sisters? Christians are those who know that receiving is wonderful, but it is even more blessed, more wonderful to give. And so just as quickly as Daniel has received, what's he immediately thinking? How can I use what I've received to bless for kingdom purposes and the welfare of my friends? Beyond that, though, I think we can also say this. It is good for us to be mindful of God's people in general. Because you see, I don't think it was just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that Daniel was thinking of when he made this request. I think Daniel is thinking about all of those other exiles from Judah now living in Babylon, and he knows future exiles are certainly to come. Frankly, at this point in history, everybody knew the fall of Jerusalem was coming. Everybody knew what was going to happen, they just didn't know when. But 586 B.C., it was going to happen. 
And the people of Judah were going to be taken exile and brought into Babylon. And they would need friends in high places looking out for them. They would need a voice in Babylonian government making sure that they were cared for. Daniel isn't just thinking about his friends. He's thinking about his people. Mount Hermon, do we think this way? As we live our lives, are we living with the kingdom in view? Are we mindful of our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in this church, but but throughout eastern North Carolina? There are so many needs among God's people around us. We have so many fellow believers battling poverty and addiction and struggling to crawl out of a cycle of failure. And certainly around the world, we have brothers and sisters living under persecution. Brothers and sisters laying their lives on the line in order to bear witness to Christ. And as God blesses you, as God brings you into good times, as God brings you into prosperity and honor, are you looking for opportunities to turn that blessing that God has brought you into blessing to them? Blessed to be a blessing should be our mantra. Blessed to be a blessing. But here's a closing thought and we're done. As we think about Daniel's friends, as we think about the exiles in Judah, can't we say that it is a good thing to have friends in high places? Can't we say it's a good thing when you get to be the friend of a powerful man? And in light of that, let us wonder at the fact that Jesus Christ has made us his friends. What a thought that the king of kings, the most powerful man in the world, is your friend, Christian. He is mindful of you. He is in the throne room of God, but he cares for you. He takes an interest in you. You have been given free access to his time, to his attention in prayer. This is an incredible reality. What do we say at the beginning? It's all about who you know. Some of you may remember the old Christian rock band Petra. They were one of the first Christian rock bands. And one of their songs addressed the person who, who seemed to know everybody. right? The person who seemed to know all the important people. But didn't know the one who matters most. And part of the song says this. You are tied in and networked. You've got people to see. You have friends in high places. You've got places to be. You've got plenty of time to make your mark. You've been able to get things done. All the people in white shirts will take your calls. You've really had quite a run. But who can you turn to when your life is behind you? It's all about who you know. It's all about who you know. When you get to the end and you've got nothing to show, it's all about who you know. It's all about who you know. 1 John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him. May we all know and may we all trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.